When I was a kid, uh, one of the places that I really, really look forward to going was a place called Jumbo Video. I don't know if anybody remembers Jumbo Video or lived near a Jumbo Video, but what a national treasure it was. And uh, you would, for the young people who have no idea what I'm talking about, well, we used to watch videos on VHS tapes. They're about this big. And you'd go to the store and you would walk into Jumbo Video and the first thing that would hit you was this waft of movie popcorn smell. You'd get your free popcorn as kids. It was probably really, it was probably like styrofoam packing peanuts. But as a child, it was the greatest popcorn uh, to be desired. And we would take this popcorn and then you would go through the aisles and you would look at all the look at all of the uh, artwork on all of the VHS cassette tapes and you'd spend so much time in there trying to decide what you're going to watch for movie night or whatever. And it, and so, you know, for those of you who didn't get to enjoy that experience because you've grown, grown up maybe with streaming, it, just imagine your Netflix uh, menu in 3D space that you could walk through. Now, there's some differences though, and that's that quite often you you can, you know, you do Netflix and snore. You just kind of... Scroll through, scroll through, don't watch anything and go to bed because you just spent an hour and a half looking at shows and reading and watching trailers and then watching nothing. Whereas when you're at Jumbo Video, you never did that. You never walked through all the aisles and looked at all the artwork and then just laid down at the uh, laid down on the carpet and went to bed. Uh, you always left with something because there was a high degree of commitment. You had, you had to drive there. So um, what's interesting about uh, whether it's your Netflix menu or or uh, RIP uh, Jumbo Video, is uh, it was a, a place that was a collection of genres. And when we come to the scriptures, the Bible is a collection of books, and each book is written in a different, uh, or sorry, has a, uh, the books of the Bible fall into categories of genre. And even within books, there's multiple genres. We've been going through um, the book of James. And James is a letter to the church, but it's unlike all the other pastoral letters. It's unique in the New Testament because it's essentially sort of falls into the category of wisdom literature in the New Testament. It's, it's a pastoral letter that takes the form of wisdom literature. And it's unique in the sense that <clears throat> all of the other pastoral letters spend a lot of time talking about um, justification. For those of you who are new to church or new to the Bible, justification means um, how, how a person becomes right with God? And the answer is Christ alone. Uh, justification has to do with uh, a one-time act that Jesus did on the cross uh, as he lived a perfect life, died an atoning death, and uh, justified us before God, this divine resurrection, for our sin. So a lot of the New Testament spends quite a lot of time talking about justification before it moves to sanctification. Sanctification, for those of you who don't know, is a fancy theological word that means uh, not how you become right with God, but what it looks like to be a child of God. How, by the indwelling power of the Spirit, we are more and more um, looking more like Jesus. And so books like Romans, you get, you go, you know, 11 chapters before you get to chapter 12 where Paul says, therefore, you know, how are we going to live? Uh, the book of Ephesians, you half of 50% of it, three chapters, and then all of a sudden in chapter four, okay, how, what does this look like? How are we going to live? The book of Galatians, same thing. Hey, this is not the gospel. You guys are thinking you're getting saved, you know, you're saving yourself by your works and keeps on going. Then you get to chapter, chapters uh, f uh, five at Galatians. He says, for freedom, he set us free. So how does this now live? How does this now look? How do we live? Well, we don't go back to our sinful ways. So they're all kind of that way. James, though, one sentence at the beginning, he says, Jesus Christ is Lord and God. And then he just moves on for the rest of the entire book 
on what does that mean and what does it look like if Jesus Christ is truly Lord and God. So here we are this morning as we continue our study uh, of this uh, great book in James chapter 4. I'm going to read the first 10 verses. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they, do they not come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. And when you do ask, you don't receive because you've asked with the wrong motives that you might spend what you get on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that is caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. And that is why the scripture says God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. This is God's word. We're going to look at this text this morning um, and break it down in two ways. Um, the, first way we're going, the first thing we're going to look at is the root of conflict. And the second thing we're going to look at is the solution for the conflict. So the root of our conflict um, that's both within us, the conflict within us and among us, is our dissatisfied, restless hearts. And the solution for the conflict that is within us and among us is drawing near to God who by his great grace draws near to us. And he reorients and he heals and he strengthens our dissatisfied restless hearts. Those are the two um, sort of broad categories that we're going to look at the text this day. So let's look at the first thing. Let's look at this root of conflict. Uh, you look at verse one and James says, where is this conflict come from? Where is it stemming from? And, uh, and he says, you know, it's from within us. There's the, the, the reason for the conflict among us is actually within us. It's nothing is easier than pointing to something outside and saying that's the reason there's problems in the church. That's the reason that there's problems in my home or my marriage or with my family. Uh, nothing is easier than pointing outside at the reason why we're doing something. And nothing is more difficult than doing an internal autopsy and saying, okay, let's just look at this, um, uh, what's going on inside me here. And so James is provocative in his language. And he says, look, there's tension in the church. There's problems in the church. And the reason for the problems among us are your desires are sus. He says, you got to look at your desires, right? Don't point, don't, you're blaming me. Self-report, bro. The problem is with you. So whether it's conflict in the church or our own soul, we got to, we got to take inventory and consider these competing desires. Cause of course you've got the old and the new nature. The old nature is oriented to the self and the new nature is oriented, you know, to love God and love others, even at the expense of ourselves. And so when you consider um, during COVID, one of the conversations that keeps coming up is the concern, and rightly so, about mental health. And the reason for this, of course, is because we need each other and we're created for community. And, and the, you know, the world, regardless of our worldview, whether you're Christian, agnostic, atheist, Muslim, Hindu, everybody universally agrees that we need 
people. We're sort of communal beings, if you will. But why though? Why is it? Why is it that without community, there's all this discussion around mental health? The reason is because we were created in the image of a Trinitarian God, a God who within himself, Father, Son, Spirit, was not a singularity. He was, he's not focused on himself, but even within the very nature of God, was, had a posture of love, of focused away from the self toward the other. That is the agape love. That is the love of preference. And so to the degree that we are fixated on ourselves, we don't flourish, our souls shrivel. And so to the degree that we wake up with way too much time to be fixated on ourselves, this becomes now a mental health concern, and rightly so, and scripturally so, because we are not created to live life predominantly oriented on waking up and saying, what do I want to do today to please myself today? To the degree that we do that, the soul shrivels, but to the degree that we love others, the soul flourishes. And so James is saying, at the core of the conflict, the immediate context here, by the way, is the problems in the church. But at the core of it, there is, verse 2 says, dissatisfaction. There is a dissatisfied, disordered heart. You are basically waking up every day with this bubbling stream of dissatisfaction. It's the undercurrent of your life. And because of that dissatisfaction, um, he goes on to say, you know, it leads to this sort of this covetousness. You don't have the life you wish you had. And it leads to this anger. And the anger leads to the death of relationships. And anger is always uh, the kiss of death to relationships. That's why he uses such strong language. Look at the text. He says, you desire, but you don't have what you desire, so you kill. And he's using that strong language on purpose because, of course, throughout the wisdom literature of James, James is making use of the wisdom of Jesus, who said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, um, if you have anger in your heart, it's the same as murder. You know, I've gone to uh, seek counsel and sat down with a counselor to talk about my struggles a- a- uh, with anger. I've, it's it's uh, terrible and it's, it's uh, embarrassing and shameful that I struggle with anger. And the counselor said to me, well, anger is a secondary emotion. So what's underneath the anger? Okay, now that is precisely what the scripture gives us here. That is the wisdom of the scripture. It says anger is actually a secondary emotion. The reason you're anger, the reason you're killing, to use James's words here, the reason you're killing relationships is because there's a bubbling stream of dissatisfaction and it's coming out in all kinds of ways. So you've got to explore what, what, uh, you know, what the root is of that uh, dissatisfaction. And so when he goes on to say, you know, you, you're, you're angry and you kill, to be clear, anger takes a lot of forms. It doesn't mean you're ranting and raving and yelling. It can look that way. Uh, but, you know, in, in my life, when I'm angry, I'm not uh, typically and generally raising my voice and yelling and screaming. When I'm angry, I can just send a vibe that lets the whole room know that I'm angry. And so he, so he's saying we got to look at what is underneath this anger. Where is the dissatisfaction? Because in the moment that we are sinning, sin seems like a good idea. Sin seems to be worth it. Sin seems to be justified. I mean, us lashing out and sort of... Um, you know, causing, wreaking havoc in relationships at the moment seems like the best course of action. And so uh, we want to explore, uh, you know, thoughtfully and prayerfully, what is at the root of this dissatisfaction? Well, how is it that I'm not living the life that I want? Is it that my academic pursuits 
are off course and I'm dissatisfied? Is it, uh, could it be that my career is not where I wish it to be and I'm chronically dissatisfied? Could it be that I somehow, when I was a, a, a young person, uh, maybe a teenager in my 20s, I, I made a vision board for where I thought my life would be at and I've sort of looked up my Gantt chart and I said, I'm not even close and I'm dissatisfied. Uh, could it be that, uh, you know, I spend hours and hours on social media and as I'm curating through everybody's carefully, you know, selected highlight reels of their life interspersed with all the ads that are being thrown my way by the algorithms to remind me that I need more stuff to be happy, is it possible that as I'm doing that, it's breeding this sort of dissatisfaction uh, in my life? And is that dissatisfaction now the undercurrent that's affecting uh, relationships? Again, the original context, relationships in the church or relationships in the family. Is it because, you know, role is the dissatisfaction of my life in such a way that I'm easily offended by the church or in, in uh, this context of COVID, I have no desire to connect with the church. I have no use for the church. I withdraw from the church. What's going on underneath it all? And, uh, and so when we look at this, we, we realize that it can play out not just in the church, of course, but in our marriages, with our spouses, with our children, with our friends. Because like the 1960s philosopher Mick Jagger once said, I can't get no satisfaction. Though I try, and I try, and I try, and I try. I can't get no satisfaction. So the text goes on. He says, you ha-, then he says, you know, you don't have because you don't ask. Now again, if you stay, in a, if you stay oriented to the self, you're like, oh, well, here's the solution. I'm dissatisfied and I don't have what I want to satisfy me. So all I got to do is ask God and hey, I'm a Christian. So now I got God and all the angels in heaven to give me what I want. Absolutely not. That's not what this text means whatsoever. He says, first of all, he's saying that to ask is to go to God, to turn to God firstly. So it's a posture of prayer. And so the first thing James says is you're not praying. In other words, there's not a posture of dependency on God's grace. There is a posture of self-sufficiency. I don't really need God's grace. In my own life, when I go through seasons where I don't pray about something for hours or days or weeks, and all of a sudden I stop and I realize, oh man, I haven't really prayed about this, it's self-sufficiency. So the first thing James tackles is, you know, no prayer. But then after highlighting no prayer, he moves on to something that I know in my life, and maybe you can identify with this, uh, he, he talks about selfish prayer. So he moves from no prayer to selfish prayer. He goes, hey, you don't ask because you're not praying. But secondly, P.S., when you do pray, you're praying with selfish ambition. So your prayers aren't being answered. Uh, His language is, you know, you're asking amiss. The text says to spend it on your pleasure. In other words, he says the problem in that church and potentially in our church is you're really not interested in God as a father. What you want is a cosmic genie. You don't care. And the preacher can say, God is with you in your struggle. God is with you. His presence is with you. But at the end of the day, I can say that. And something deep down inside you is like, you know what? I just don't, there's nothing about that is satisfying to me. I don't care about a God who's with me. I need a genie that grants wishes to me. That's what I need. And so he says, you ask amiss. And I'll tell you, you might think I'm being hyperbolic here. Can I say that right? Yeah. Hyperbolic. <laughs> okay. Because <clears throat> look, at the t- look at the language he uses. He says, you're a- you ask amiss to spend it on your pleasure. Look at that phrase, spend it on your pleasure. That's what we call in the biz, a theological callback. Because there was another guy in the New Testament who took everything and spent it on his pleasure. It was the prodigal son. So James here uses the exact language, the exact Greek phrasing to say, you know what? You can, you can pray prodigal prayers. 
And uh, you're just sort of motivated to say, I'm dissatisfied. There's this bubbling river of dissatisfaction flowing through my life. I kind of wake up every day a little sad. So the way I'm going to pray is going to sound like this. Dear God, please give me my idols in Jesus name. Amen. And James goes, there's no way God is answering those prayers. Because if there is a chronic dissatisfaction, because you ultimately don't want to turn and find rest in him, um, then God being a loving and wise father is not going to hand your idols to you. And so when you think about how Jesus uh, taught about prayer, when Jesus taught prayer, Jesus taught that um, the purpose of prayer is not to persuade a reluctant God to do our will, but to go to a loving and generous God and have him transform our hearts so that we desire his will, come into union with his will. So that's why the Lord's Prayer is structured like this. Our Father who is in heaven, praise be to your name. So we spend some time in praise. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Hey, what are you up to, God? Whatever it is, and I don't need to know, but may that be done. In my life, in my marriage, with my kids, at work, at school, in this church, during COVID, Oh God, may your will be done. So notice we haven't asked for anything yet. So after there's praise to God and saying, I want the will of God, then after the heart orientation of prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Now I start talking about what I need and I bring my petitions to God and we ask to God because now you know we're holding those petitions very lightly. Oh God, maybe you'll answer the prayer in the exact way I ask and that would be beautiful. But if you choose not to ask, answer in the way that I asked, I trust that whatever your answer is, is good. And to borrow a phrase from my good friend, Timothy Keller, God will always give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. And so we're uh, provoked to turn to God in prayer in this way. You know, and I'm learning this over and over as we're praying about this facility, um, a facility in the city where we can begin to gather every week, responsibly, of course, but gather every week. And so I'm learning how impatient I am. I'm learning how prone I am to try and just move things and make things happen by reaching out and not hearing back. Nobody returns my call or my email you know, within 24 hours and I want to call them back and be like, hey, how's it going? No, let's plan for the future. Rather than stopping and turning to God in prayer and spending more time in prayer trusting um, that he is going to guide and direct us as a, as a church community in that way. So what James does then is he flows from this and he, he uses the phrase in verse four, adulterous people. And he's not just slinging insults, by the way. When the Bible's very, very strong through the Old Testament calling us, calling the, the children of God adulterers, Exodus 34, Isaiah 54, Jeremiah 3, it's all over. You're adulterers. But it's not an angry God slinging insults. It's to convey the hurt and the betrayal that God feels as a lover who's being betrayed. And so, yes, there is, there, there is a judgment in, that, in, in those words and in that description, but we, we, we should not just hear sort of an angry judgment, like a vengeful angry judgment. We need to hear a broken heart from a God who's continually and perpetually moving towards us in grace and in love, even though we're not faithful, he stays faithful, which is why one of the theologians, John Calvin, used to say, our hearts are like idol-making factories. So then he moves on, from here, as he's saying, like, let's just really explore the root of our dissatisfaction. And then he uses the phrase friendship with the world. You know, if, if there's friendship with the world, you're an enemy of God. And oh my goodness, the language is so strong. What could this mean? Well, we know it can't mean to be hostile towards the culture. 
We know it can't mean to be sort of like angry religious bigots to our neighbors and people at work. Because when you look at Jesus, Jesus loved all kinds of people. But Jesus did not have his ideology formed by all kinds of people. Jesus gave love and dignity to everybody. Jesus would have dinner with anybody. But Jesus was not being formed by anybody. And so there's something that we want to grab here that whenever the Bible is using really aggressive language about, you know, friendship with the world or being enemy of God, this is not an instruction about how aggressive we should be with people. This is an instruction on how aggressive we need to be with those ungodly ideologies and the, play, and the room we've given it in our own hearts. That's why saying you've become friends with it. You've cozied up to the idea. And if you follow the flow, this is what he's saying is there's a problem. And because you've cozied up to the quote unquote wisdom of the culture of the world, that is feeding into this river of dissatisfaction that is now flowing in your life. You've bought into ideologies um, that are now having a formative effect and the, and the effect is not good. And I'm going to explain, you know, give you a picture of why it's so aggressive, you know, this way. You can't just sort of live with it. When our kids were really little, we were at Susan's parents' place and we were watching football in the basement and there was a mouse in the house. We're watching the game and all of a sudden a mouse runs across the floor. I'm going to tell you something. Steve was raised on a farm. What that means is they don't do catch and release. Okay? Farm strong. So what happened was Steve did not relate to this mouse like we can just sort of coexist. He went straight up Tarantino. And my kids will never forget that, day, that mouse became a mouse pad, is what I'm saying. After the seventh or eighth hit, it was definitely dead. After the 26th strike, it was just dad being farm strong. Now, sometimes the biblical language around sin, it carries that kind of gravity. Kill it. You know, look at the language in this text. Friend, friend of the world, enemy of God. Strong, strong language. So again, what does that mean? It's not our posture towards people. We're supposed to love and care for them, even those who don't share our ideologies. But we're to have a very, very aggressive stance on our own hearts and how we adopt the ideologies of the culture um, as, and cozying up to them, the ideology, like it's our friends. So sometimes, you know, people will say, oh, to be like the early church. Everybody relax. We're exactly like the early church. Okay, don't, don't romanticize the early church. Um, we are exactly like the early church. We've got the same spiritual character flaws and problems as the early church, which is why the text goes on to say the spirit who dwells in us earnest, or, uh, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. It means that the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit has this sort of jealous yearning, right, for our friendship with God. So it convicts us of our friendship with the world. Why? Because the context is of this entire thing where it started is there's, you've got problems in the church and you've got problems in your life relationally. And those problems are stemming from anger and dissatisfaction. You're fundamentally dissatisfied. And that fundamental dissatisfaction is because you've adopted ideology of the, of the world, which in short is there is no God, be your own God. And somehow something has woven in 
and uh, woven itself into your heart, and it's cre- it's created um, these wayward desires. And so, so this whole section invites a lot of thought. I'm just sort of skimming the surface, but for you to take time this afternoon, this week, to really think about where in your life you're dissatisfied and how that's playing out, and then to turn to God for Him to do powerful healing work. Which brings us to the second portion as I uh, wrap up this text this morning. The solution for this conflict, the solution for what's going on within us, the solution for the problems among us, it's to draw near to God, who he draws near to us. And in his drawing near to us, he reorients us, he heals us, he strengthens our dissatisfied, restless hearts. Let's look at this. Look at the text. Verse six, it says, but he gives more grace. That phrase stands in a wonderful contradiction of, uh, sorry, not contradiction, a, a wonderful opposition to all of the words that preceded it. I just spent all this time sort of unpacking the problem for you. But then this phrase shows up, but he gives more grace. In other words, the same Holy Spirit who is convicting us of our compromise grants us the power and the strength to overcome that compromise. The same grace that saved you, the same grace that justified you is the exact same grace that empowers, sanctifies, and does renewal in you. So look at the, look at the next phrase here. It says, God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Look at that language, resisting and, uh, uh, sorry, res- resisting the proud and grace to the humble. So when we are dissatisfied, when the church is dissatisfied, you can relate to God in, in two different ways, religious pride or repentant humility, right? He says he's going to resist you if you're proud. And he's not talking to the world. He's talking to the church. He says God will resist you if you're proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So religious pride is a posture that assumes, imagine a religious person, a religious mindset when you're dissatisfied. The religious mindset when you're dissatisfied is God is obligated to bless me He's obligated to bless me with a better set of circumstances on the basis of the good things I've done. Whereas a humble posture, when you're dissatisfied, is thankful that God's presence is with me, strengthening me, regardless of these circumstances, not on the basis of what I have done, but on the basis of what Christ has done. It is a very empowering posture. Look at the, I'm telling you, look at the next verse, how this plays out. Verse seven says, submit to God, resist the devil. Right? Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. What in the world does that mean? For those of you exploring Christian faith uh, or spirituality this morning, you might be thinking, yeah, see, this is where, this is where uh, the Bible loses me, this talk of the devil, because of these modern constructs of the devil. The devil looks like you know the dean from Greendale College and community, and he shows up with horns and a tail and, a, and an old maid's outfit and a chainsaw, and you're like, this is the devil. No, the, in the Hebrew language, the devil is the Satan, which means the enemy, the adversary of God. And from the beginning, from Eden, the plan is divine treason. You don't need God. Relate to life like you're a God. You will not be fulfilled by God. Fulfill yourself and be your own God. So do you see the dissatisfaction here in James 4 can be traced all the way back to Genesis 3. It's the same script that the enemy is on. So notice the language of submitting and resisting. We don't like the language of submitting because we're afraid that if we submit, you know, uh, there's going to be hurt. We're going to be taken advantage of. There's going to be oppression. We look at Christians that have made a mockery of the gospel or 
Christian institutions and churches that have made a disaster of the gospel. We look at that and we say, I cannot submit to God. I cannot submit because it's a mess. But you can't find any of that mess in Jesus. So the text says, submit to God um, and this being a good thing. I'm going to borrow from Spurgeon and he says it this way. If God were a tyrant, then it might be courageous to resist. But since God is a father, it's ungrateful to rebel. This is wrestling language. You're either submitting or you're resisting. You're either fighting or you're submitting. You're either getting pinned and you're tapping out or you're fighting. This is the language James uses. And what he's trying to say is everybody is fighting and everybody is submitting to something, either God or the way of the Satan in being your own God. We're all doing it. So, he, so the, the thing is, God is, try, God is constantly extending grace to those who are trying to fight him. God, everybody who is in this church, Redeemer, every one of us are here because even though, even though in our own hearts we would fight against God, he by his great, great grace wants to save everybody who wants to kill him. Jesus is on the cross saying, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Stephen is being stoned, saying, why do you always fight against the Holy Spirit? Paul is on the Damascus Road in Acts 9, and Jesus says to Paul, why are you always fighting against me? Why are you kicking against the goats? You're fighting against me when you should be submitting to me. Submission being a good thing and a gloriously liberating, freeing thing. And so what the text is getting at here is, if you will stop fighting God and instead fight the urge, fight the devil, fight the urge to be God, fight the lie of the devil, which is to be God, then you, he will flee you and you will be free. And the context here is the dissatisfaction, chronic dissatisfaction, crushing burden of being your own God will go and the liberating freedom of resting in the hand of God will come. So it says that he will, he will uh, flee. And this is what this, the promises this gives us. Verse eight, as I close, it says, did I say I was closing? This is my second closing. Second closing. My family's like second closing. Land the plane. Okay, land in the plane. Verse eight says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Right? This is an invitation and a promise. You know, you go into this rhythm of prayer and worship and meditation. This is a gift of grace because all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Covenant, God is saying, don't come any closer. And here, because of the grace of Jesus, God is saying, come closer. You see, before Christ went to the cross and died his, died his atoning death for our sin, we couldn't come closer. But here we're being explicitly called to come closer. And so we are called away from our double-mindedness to a single-mindedness. We are called, being called away from our restlessness to his rest. And so we are to humble ourselves, verse 10 says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Jesus was lifted up on a cross, forsaken by God, so that you could be lifted up by the forgiving, empowering grace of God. Jesus was lifted up. And when he cried out, he was left alone so that you could be lifted up. So that when you cry out, you are never alone. Consider how weak we are and how strong he is, how proud we are and how gracious he is, how provoking we are and how forgiving he is. Sin will always seek to enter and grace is always available to shut the door. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Let's pray.